There's a story about three trees that stood together on a mountain. As they grew, they discussed their dreams for the future. The first tree said, I'd like to be made into an impressive, expensive chest. It'll be my job to hold and protect the greatest treasures in all the world. The second tree said, I wish to be made into a mighty sailing vessel. I'll carry kings and queens across the ocean, safely through storms. The third tree said, I don't want to ever be cut down. I want to grow higher and higher right here on this mountaintop. And everyone looking at me and seeing my branches touching heaven will think of God's glory. Well, years passed, and eventually three lumberjacks arrived to fell the three trees, as happens in stories. The first tree had grown to be beautiful, and after being cut down, he was sent to a carpenter's workshop, and he thought, at last, I'll be made into something that can hold something of great value. But he wasn't made into a treasure chest. The carpenter chose to fashion him into an ordinary feeding trough. The second tree had grown up to be strong, and upon being transported to a shipping yard, he expected to be fashioned into a great vessel fit for transporting royalty across the high seas. Instead, though, he found himself made into a humble fishing boat. The third tree grew taller and reached higher toward the heaven than either of his friends, but he too was brought down. As he thought to himself, all I wanted to do was stand tall and point the way to heaven, he was cut into plain beams and placed in storage. As time passed, all three trees began to forget about the dreams they'd once had. At least until one night, when the first tree's dream received new life. Instead of food for animals, a young mother placed her newborn child into that trough. And as visitors gathered around the manger and bowed down and worshipped the child held within... That first tree knew that within him was the most valuable treasure the earth had ever seen. One night, the second tree, now a fishing boat, had been taken out across a small body of water carrying a sleeping traveler and his friends. That night, the sea was terrifying as it was rocked by a great storm. And that tree wished he had been made into a stronger boat, but he doubted that even the strongest boat could have withstood that storm. Just then, the sleeping traveler wakened, He told the wind and the waves to be quiet, and they obeyed. It was then that the second tree realized he was transporting royalty, the very king of heaven. The third tree remained in storage, where he couldn't even see the sky, let alone reach the heavens. One Friday morning, he was hauled out into the light by a group of soldiers and placed on the shoulders of a man who had been severely beaten and bloodied. And after being carried to the top of a hill... That tree was stood straight up as the man's hands and feet were nailed to him. The sky grew dark, and the man cried out loudly and died. Three days later, this man rose from the dead and confirmed what he had promised all along, that being lifted up from the earth, he would draw all people to himself and reveal God's glory to many. The first tree held the treasure of greatest value. The second tree carried the king of all creation through a storm. And the third tree lifted up the glory of God for all to behold. Now you might wonder why I open with a tree story which is a little sappy for my taste. But, but there are two reasons why I open with that story today. And the first is that just to notice that even... Even though each one of those trees went on to play a great role in God's plans, in order for that to happen, each one of those trees' own plans and dreams had to first die for that to happen. 
That's the first moral, if you want to call it, to the story, and it's fairly common. And most of the time, without even realizing it, the world kind of waters down that moral into something that sounds like this. Uh, well, everything happens for a reason. As we're going to examine today, the actual Christian truth that giving up your life is necessary in order to find a new life, that's much more challenging and ultimately much more rewarding than just a little flippant kind of, oh, everything happens for a reason sort of story. The second reason I tell that story is to point out a detail that most of us don't really pause to consider, and that's this. Inside the context of that story, if Jesus had not existed none of those happy endings would have been possible. If you remove Jesus, then you're just left with three lousy, broken dreams that go nowhere. And as it goes in the story, so it goes in history. If you don't believe that God truly, literally, acted in history by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die in the place of sinners, to redeem and restore, then what hope is there really that things will get any better than they already are today. Today, as we continue to preach through John's Gospel, we arrive at a passage where Jesus clearly states the purpose for which he came into the world, and that was to die. Now, if Jesus was so clear on that, then we need to be equally clear on it. Many people seek after Jesus, and the passage that we're going to read actually begins with a group of people coming and saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Are you here today to see Jesus? Would you describe yourself as a follower of his? Or maybe you would just describe yourself as someone who is seeking, who would like to find Jesus. A lot of people seek Jesus expecting to find a miracle worker, because he was that. A lot of people seek Jesus expecting to find a a teacher or a compassionate friend, or a revolutionary. Well, he was all those things too. But if you're seeking after Jesus, what are you looking for? Just what do you expect to find when you find him? What's so striking about Jesus' response to these men who came to him saying, we wish to see Jesus, is that it shows for us that any who would come and seek and find Jesus, Jesus intends that we would find him as the one who was crucified. If you want to find Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the one who can forgive sins and rescue souls, the one who can make all things new and grant eternal life, then it's necessary to understand that this Jesus is the one who had to die to make that possible. Before we go any further and uh, read God's word, let's just pause and pray together. Heavenly Father, we come and we thank you for your word today. We thank you that you have spoken to us through it, that you give us your Holy Spirit to convict, to open our eyes and to reveal what you have said and, and what you would have us do in response to it. We thank you that you have spoken so clearly through your Son, who came to reveal yourself and your will and your glory to us. We ask, Holy Spirit, that as we, as we read your word now, that you would do what, what mere human words and explanations cannot that you will reveal to our hearts the truth about Jesus Christ, what you have said, that you will convict us, and that you will bring us to respond in faith, obediently to what you have said. Lord, I pray that you'll help me to make what you've said clear and to not get in the way of it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
We're going to read in John chapter 12, starting at verse 20, and we'll read up to verse 33, even though we're mainly just looking at verses 20 to 26 this morning. And keep in mind as we read the context. Everything from John chapter 12 up to chapter 19 takes place in or around Jerusalem during the week leading up to Passover, during the final week of Jesus' earthly life and ministry leading up to his death. Last week, we experienced the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where the crowds were hailing Jesus as king of the Jews, and Jesus, for the first time in his ministry, actually publicly accepted that title. But as Pastor Dan showed us last week, even though Jesus knew he really was coming as their expected Messiah and king, he was coming as a very different kind of king than they might have expected, which sets the stage for our passage this morning, where Jesus is speaking about the way He is going to free his people by dying on their behalf, and he's going to indicate that the time for this to happen has now arrived. We'll begin reading John 12 in verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went together and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. If you look with me at verse 23, there is a statement made by Jesus which should probably get the attention of anyone who has been carefully reading through John's gospel so far. Two of Jesus' apostles, Andrew and Philip, tell Jesus that some Greeks have come to see him, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This gets reinforced a little further in verse 27. For this purpose I have come to this hour. Up until now in John's gospel, the hour has been mentioned at least four times, but it's always something that's coming in the future. It's something that's not yet. In John 2, verse 4, Jesus tells his mother, my hour has not yet come. Similarly, in in chapter 7, verse 30, we read, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So John 12, 23 is significant because Jesus tells us that now the hour has come. And one thing that does is clear up for us just how important and central Jesus considers his coming death and resurrection and exaltation to be. It's the defining moment of his earthly career. It's the purpose for which he has come. 
The other thing it does is make us wonder, what is it about these Greeks coming to see him that leads Jesus to say, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified? What helps to remember just how intensely Jewish the context is at this point. We're in the city of Jerusalem. It's Passover time. Jesus has just allowed himself to be publicly heralded as the promised Messiah, the King of Israel. And there are two ideas in the Old Testament about what the coming of the Messiah means for the rest of the nations, for all the Gentiles out there. Idea number one is that the nations who have in the past beat up on Israel are going to get what's coming to them. Israel will rule over them. Idea number two is that in some way, many from the Gentile nations will be drawn to God and come to him and find him and worship him in truth and actually become members of the people of God. Now in 30 AD, in Jerusalem, under Roman rule at the Passover, more people were thinking about idea number one than idea number two. So there's Philip and Andrew, two apostles of Jesus. And by the way, if you look back to John chapter 1, you see Philip and Andrew together again. Both Philip and Andrew had reputations for bringing people to Jesus. They were really good at that. They were just natural evangelists. But this time, they have a chance to bring these Greeks to Jesus. But Jesus has just announced himself, outed himself as the Messiah, the coming King of Israel, And now they're not so sure. They're a little bit tentative about what to do with these Gentiles. So instead of bringing them, they go and they they ask Jesus. And Jesus' response must have caught them off guard. It's electric. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now is the time for Jesus to die for the whole world. John's already told us a few places. John 3.16 comes to mind, I think, uh, right away, uh, that Jesus would die to become the Savior, not only of the Jews, but of the entire world. And now, says Jesus, the time is here. What seems strange to us as readers is that we never get to find out if these Greeks got their audience with Jesus. But here's the thing. It actually, in the end, is not that important if they saw him yet. Because in order to to be the savior that the whole world needs to find, Jesus first needs to be lifted up on the cross. That's why when we read down to verse that's why we read down to verse 32 this morning to see Jesus say and I when I am lifted up from the earth will draw all people to myself. The gospel is a gospel for the whole world only because of the cross. If finding Jesus is going to do these Greeks any good at all, then they need to find Jesus on the cross as the atoning sacrifice who can take away the sins of the world. And the same is true for each one who hears the gospel today. If you would find Jesus as the one who saves you, then you must know him as the one who died for you. Jesus could have still been Jesus the great teacher without dying, but if that were the case, I would still be dead in my sins. He could have still been Jesus the miracle worker without dying, but if that were the case, I would still be dead in my sin. He could have still been Jesus, King of the Jews, without the cross, but he would never draw all people to himself. Without the cross, you and I would be dead in our sins. If you seek Jesus but avoid the cross, you won't have Jesus, Savior of the world. You won't have a Savior at all. Now how is it that in verse 23, Jesus said the hour came for him to be crucified, but he didn't say crucified. 
he used the word glorified. Glorified. What glory can there possibly be in a wrongful, shameful death? I'm not going to pretend to offer you a comprehensive answer right now today. But I want to say this about what it means for something to be glorified. When God is glorified, what changes? Does he become more beautiful? Does God become more perfect? More wonderful? No, God never changes. God has always been and always be the most perfect, the most beautiful, the most holy, the most, the most precious thing that could ever exist. So what happens when Jesus is glorified on the cross? Imperfect example warning. Imperfect illustration warning. If it helps, keep it. If not, throw it out. But my daughter, Lily, is beautiful. If she were to stand in a darkened room with no light, I can't be sure, but I'm, I'm pretty positive she would remain just as beautiful. But I wouldn't be able to see her. And that's a big deal for her, because her constant request is, look at me. Look at me, Daddy. When the light switch gets flipped, and I can finally see her, she hasn't gotten any more beautiful, but she has been glorified, because now I can see her better. So when Jesus is glorified on the cross... What's changed in God? Has God become any more perfect? No. But a light has been shone on God's splendor, which allows us to behold him in a way that we could not before. God's not become more wonderful, but he's been revealed to us in a way that shows us more of his glory than we could have ever known otherwise. What does the cross reveal? The cross reveals the full ugliness of sin. When you realize that because of sin, the innocent Son of God, the one who made you and loves you, hung naked, mocked, beaten, and reviled, and eventually dead. And that he did that because of you and me. That it should have been you. It should have been me. But because of us, and because of his love for us, it was him instead. When all of that sinks in, our ability to just kind of shrug off sin, like not such a big deal, that disappears in a real hurry. Sin brings shame that ends in death. That's what it does. And the cross reveals to us just how bad sin really is. And by revealing how bad sin is, the cross reveals to us how great God's love and mercy and grace towards us truly is. The cross glorifies God because it shows us that he will not budge when it comes to the price that must be paid for sin, and yet he will also not break his promise to rescue and redeem his people. So on the cross, Jesus is glorified because he himself dies for sinners so that they might live. When Jesus says right there in verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's speaking of how necessary it is, what he's about to do. And also about the results of what he's going to do. Make no mistake, if Jesus had not died, then he would indeed remain alone. There is no forgiveness for sin, no eternal life to be had, apart from his sacrifice. In just a minute, we're going to read a little further, and we're going to see that this, this model of giving up one's own life in order to bear fruit and make a difference, 
It does get applied to us as Jesus followers a little bit later. But that's only something that you can enter into after you're a recipient of the grace that's offered in Jesus' death for you. Before we move ahead, it's absolutely crucial to hear this. If you would be saved from your sins, you have to know, know that Jesus died for you. It's not enough to just talk about him as a great teacher or as an example. He was those things, but it was not for those things that he came to the cross. It's not enough to talk about Jesus approvingly as the savior of the world, like over there. Like that, that's great work you're doing, saving the world from sins over there. Just go, Jesus. I'll support you from over here. You have to realize that he did that personally for, for you. Maybe in your search up into this point, you've never thought of Jesus in that way as specifically drawing people to himself because he was lifted up on the cross in death. But that is what must happen. You must know that Jesus died for you. You need to be able to say, I know that Jesus died for my sins. We sing it every Sunday. We sang it today. To say that Jesus died for me and to know it, not in the sense that you're the only person in the world, that you're the center of the world and Jesus did it all for you, just you, but definitely in the sense that the cross included the punishment you deserved and that Jesus bore that punishment in your place. And if you ask, but how do I know that Jesus died for me? How do I know? Well, that could be answered by John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that who? Whoever believes in him. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that on the cross he died for you, then you can know that you have eternal life. But the next question that we need to ask is this. What do I do once I believe that Jesus died for me? What do I do? How do I respond with my life? The answer is in verse 25, and you're not going to like it. No one does. Jesus said, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. In order to truly follow Jesus, there must be a kind of sorrow over your own sin and a death of your own pride to get you to the point where you somehow realize that life that I've been living apart from following Jesus, apart from God's will, the life that I live in the flesh, chasing after my own selfish wants and desires, that life cannot possibly be the thing that Jesus came to give me. It's not the same thing as the life that he came to offer. If Jesus had to actually die in my place in order to set me free, then the goal of the Christian life cannot possibly be for me to live more and more of the old selfish life that I had already. To be free from the tyranny of sin, to be set free and to know what it means to walk closely with God, that's the thing that we hunger and thirst for underneath all the other needs in our life. But to realize that that new life is only possible if we are willing to let the old life pass away, that realization can be terrifying. But it's absolutely necessary. And even so, most of us make some strange kind of bargaining attempt with Jesus when we first, when we first start to catch an inkling of what it is he's asking from us. 
Jesus says, leave everything and follow me. And I will give you a life that lasts forever, filled with everything you need. I will make you into a citizen worthy of heaven, holy, pure, spotless. I'll make you a blessing to the world around you and a son or daughter seated at my father's table. You cannot take anything you have with you, but you won't have need of those things ever again. Jesus' offer is for us to lose all of our filthy rags and our unused possessions in order to gain the riches of heaven and friendship with God for all eternity. And how do we respond to that offer? Usually by saying something like this. Um, Jesus, is it okay if I give you, let's say, 10% of my life right now? That way I get to keep using 90% of my filthy rags and useless possessions. You know, just in case they come in handy. And I'll still have a share in all of that eternal life and kingdom of heaven that you keep talking about. What? That's insanity. It's either insanity or it's unbelief. If anyone truly believes that Jesus was the Son of God and he died and rose on your behalf, then there is no reason not to trust him with everything. Why invest 90% of your life or even 50% or even 1% in things that are fading away when Jesus offers eternal life? Think for a moment. Think about what it might cost some people in our world today to seek Jesus, to find him on the cross, to hear him say, follow me, and then do it. What's it going to cost someone who's a prominent member in the gay community to actually hear Jesus' voice and follow him? What would it cost a practicing Muslim in a country where Christians and the families of Christians are persecuted harshly. For some people, coming to Jesus is going to mean the death of their entire identity. Everything about the way they understand themselves and value themselves, everything that they they strive for and that's worth something to them, needs to be given up in exchange for the plans Jesus has for them instead. For others, coming to Jesus brings with it a very real possibility of physical death as a consequence. And then we need to ask ourselves this. Do you really think it was going to be any easier for you to follow Jesus? Are your natural preferences and your habits and your desires and your hidden sins and your selfish ways, is your natural life apart from Jesus any more fit for the kingdom of heaven than anyone else's? If following Jesus doesn't actually feel like dying to yourself, then you're not doing it right. You're not doing it right. And this is the consistent demand of Jesus every time we encounter him in the Gospels. Jesus always demands faith and obedience of those who would follow him. He never sugarcoats the fact that if anyone would follow him, the cost is extremely high. But here's the thing about Jesus. He also never lies or misrepresents the rewards or comes short on delivering those rewards. The cost is high, but so are the rewards. So many Christians find themselves unfulfilled in this life because they've still got 90% or 50% or whatever percent invested in their old life. 
They want to keep it and get the new life that they follow in Jesus. That's why we're unfulfilled. That's why we're frustrated. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. In that verse is wrapped up both the way to serve Jesus and also the rewards for serving Jesus. Follow him and you'll be where he is. That sounds good to me, to be where Jesus is. This is the point where we look back at verse 24 and we can start to apply that truth that unless a grain of wheat falls in the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, then it bears much fruit. Now we can start applying that to us as followers of Jesus. If you hand over your life to Jesus, the one who has died and come back to life, and who gives life, then your life will bear much fruit as well. Losing your own life for Jesus' sake is not really a loss at all. It transforms what would have been hollow and selfish into something meaningful and powerful and honorable. I want you to understand that I'm not standing here right now um, and I'm not unaware of what a ridiculously hard offer I'm holding out in front of you. And I don't do it lightly. I do it fearfully. I don't relish the thought of telling someone that they need to die, that their instinct for self-preservation needs to take a hike if they want to live forever. But the important thing to remember is it's not Andrew Chambers making the offer which is a good thing because I'm not able to make good on the promises in the offer. The offer comes from Jesus. And as hard as it may be, the overwhelming evidence shows this. Not one man or woman who has put it all on the line and who has followed Jesus wholeheartedly with their entire being and let themselves die, not one has ever come to regret it. Not one. To give you just one example of the potential of a life that's lived wholly surrendered to Jesus Christ, consider a man by the name of George Mueller. He lived in England a few generations ago. He founded many great orphanages, and they were all maintained solely through prayer and trusting in God's provision to keep them going. He was extremely effective in what he did. But when he was asked the secret of his effective life of service, of what it took to serve that that enthusiastically in that area that he was called to serve, this is what he said. There was a day when I died. George Mueller, his opinions, his tastes, and his will died to the world and its approval. I died to the approval or the blame of my brethren or my friends, and since then I have studied only to show myself approved unto God." You might think back to the story of the three trees that we began with this morning and remember that their dreams had to actually die before they would ever experience the greater plans God had for them. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Beloved, these things only hold true because Jesus Christ was the first to die and rise again.
Because he went to the cross in our place, he has become the savior of the whole world, of any who would seek and find him and believe in him. If you would follow him, if you would one day be with him in the presence of the Father, with no regrets, then follow him by entrusting yourselves to God in this life and by letting your own wants and desires die. If you want to see what happens with a life that never does that, that never surrenders to Jesus, that always holds on to himself, it's actually not very difficult to imagine. It doesn't take a lot of of creative thought. Just take a single seed and stick it in a drawer somewhere dry. Leave it there alone. Wait as long as you want. 12 months, 24 months, a whole lifetime. Open that cupboard again. What will you find? One seed alone. We take that same seed, put it in the ground, let it die. You won't find it anymore. But what you'll have instead in its place is a harvest, and only God knows how much. Do you know that Jesus died for you? If you know that, will you give up your life to go with him and to be found where he is? Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you. We thank you for grace that we cannot even imagine the fullness of it, but we appreciate it the most when we look at the cross. We appreciate your grace the most when we see Jesus giving his life, dying in our place. We understand your power the most when we think about Jesus risen anew, death broken. Jesus victorious, offering eternal life to any who would believe in him. Father, I pray for those here today, if there is any who has not come to the point where they have, where they have not realized yet, and maybe today is the first day when that light is shining and your word is showing this clearly and bringing conviction that, that there is no other way to be forgiven, there is no other way to have life than to trust in Jesus, the one who died and rose on our behalf. Lord, I thank you that we know what the result will be when any comes to you and trusts in Jesus' name, that you will cleanse them of their sin, that you will give them a new life that lasts forever in your presence. And Lord, we give you, the, we give you all the praise and all the glory of that because only Jesus was worthy to do it, and you show your power and your grace in it every time one comes to you. Father, we pray for all those of us here who, who do follow you, who call on your name to save us, Jesus. And we ask that your spirit would convict us if today, if today is a good day to die, if today is a good day for part of us to go down in the earth and die, to be handed over to you so that we can receive instead a life that shares in your eternal glory. Whatever that might look like, Lord, I pray that you would give the courage and the conviction to your people to live it out in your name, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.